Thank you so much, team, for leading us this morning. And if you have your Bibles, we are going to be in the Gospel of John, John chapter 13. And we're going to wrap up these last few verses of John chapter 13. Uh, We're going to walk through verses 31 through 38. And our theme this morning is around giving glory. And uh, another kind of theme that we're going to see through this is, is another way to say it what might be our name or His name. Our name or His name. Uh, and just even in light of reflecting on the blessing and gift of Brother Bill, that we saw an example of a life that lived out for the glory of God. And, and so the encouragement today is whose glory are we living for? And uh, if we're all completely honest, I think all of us would, would confess or, or say, yes, that's me, uh, that at some level, all of us wrestle with this thing called selfishness. Uh, it, it lurks at times, sometimes uh, not out of the surface at all or below the surface, but like we see it on display. Other times we're able to kind of keep it kind of, kind of, uh, pushed down away, but the reality is, is is deep down inside, we wrestle with this struggle called, uh, called, uh, you know, wanting glory or selfishness for ourselves. And I I see it played out uh, in just kind of a silly way in conversations like, where do you want to eat? All right, so you have this conversation, where do you want to eat? And the person says, well, I don't care, where do you want to eat? And you kind of go back and forth, where do you want to eat? But can we just all confess and be honest uh, we all know where we want to eat, don't we? Like, it's no secret. We know deep down, if it's up to us, we know where we would love to go. Uh, and I heard this bit, it was on the radio, and this, this, the wisdom of this husband was like, okay, I know what I'm going to do. So he asked his bride, you know, where do you want to eat? And she would always say, oh, I don't care where you want to eat. And so he was like, okay, uh, that's fine. We're going to go to and, and I'm just going to leave the blank there because the, the word he said might offend some people if it's their favorite restaurant. But what he did was he chose or said their least favorite place to eat. And when he said that, she was like, oh, no, we can't eat there. And he's like, OK, yeah, see, gotcha. Where, where do you want to go? And that's where we're going to go. And, and I say that because we all know, don't we? We like what we like. We want what we want. Uh, that if we're completely honest, there are those times where maybe that struggle has been a desire uh, to be recognized or to be the star of that show, the star of that play, uh, name in lights, recognition for whatever might be. And this idea of glory, we think of glory, and it's this giving fame and giving adoration and giving attention. Uh, but what we're going to see in, in this passage today is that God will get His glory. And we see through these few verses these avenues that He will get His glory. But I think it's also just good for us to know that this battle is real. Uh, It's probably, I'm thinking, something we all wrestle with. And if you go even back to Genesis chapter 11, there was a place called Babel. And the residents of that city got together and said, you know what? Let's build a tower. And in Matthew, or excuse me, Genesis chapter 11, verse 4 It says, then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us, here it is, 
make a name for ourselves. So we see early on this, this, this selfish desire for self-glory. And if you go back even further than Genesis 11, we see in the creation account, Genesis 1, 2, 3, that we see that man was created in the image of God and He created them male and female in the image of God. And that very first command that God gave His creation was be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. In other words, I want my glory and my image to spread over every corner of this globe. And so when people see you, they see me. They bring glory and honor to me. That with the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, God said this through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 43, 6 and 7. I will say to the north, give up. And to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar. Bring my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. God has created you for His glory. He's created me for His glory. That is the primary aim of His creating us is that we would give Him glory. And that challenge is this. Are our lives about my glory or our lives about His glory. We see that theme through the New Testament. Paul said this, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. In Romans chapter 11, verse 36, for from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. So God is all about His glory and that is our purpose in being created by Him is to Bring Him glory. That's the mission of our church, that we would be multiplying disciples for the glory of God and the mission of God. And in this upper room scene, in these few verses, we are going to see where God is going to get this glory in these texts. The main idea this morning is that Christ receives glory through the cross and through His disciples. Through the cross and through His disciples. Uh, this setting, just as a place to kind of get our bearings, we are in the, in the Thursday night of the last week of the earthly ministry of Jesus. He has entered in in that triumphal entry on Palm Sunday. They were waving palm branches, shouting Hosanna. He's cleared the temple. The, the plot to betray has been set in motion. And now he's having this final meal on a Thursday night with his disciples. The cross is in view. The cross is just a few hours away. Less than 24 hours away, Christ will be crucified on the cross from the moment that we're reading about right now. And in this moment, Christ did in that upper room what would be the unthinkable and that He rose up from that Passover meal, ending Passover, instituting communion, the Lord's Supper. He takes this towel, He wraps it around His waist, He gets a basin of water, and He goes disciple by disciple, all 12 disciples washing their feet. This ultimate sign of lowliness and servanthood. And think about who's in that mix. Think about who that... At least one of those disciples were, whose name was Judas, who had already kind of set this kind of, um, 
you know, this, this kind of like hidden plot to have Christ betrayed and arrested for 30 pieces of silver. And yet here's Christ knowing that and yet He's washing His feet. And last week we walked through that ultimate betrayal and those final words to Judas and to Satan himself were, whatever you have to do, you do it quickly. And Judas exits the scene and now Jesus is with his true disciples, these 11 disciples, and he's continuing to invest his divine uh, teaching into their lives, which for us, this is teaching we desperately need to hear in our lives, and he's going to point them to the glory that is coming in the cross, the glory of Christ through the cross. Look at John 13, verse 31, says, And when he had gone out, that's talking about Judas, When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in Him. And if God is glorified in Him, God will also glorify Him in Himself and glorify Him at once. Glory, 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 glory. Five times we see glory in what we see in these two short verses. Again, glory for us, we, we get that. Like uh, Whether we've desired that, want that, or we know what it's like to give others glory. This idea of recognition and renown and honoring. But, but yet, when we talk about the glory of God, we are talking about uh, just it transcends all of those, even our, our understanding of what glory might be. It's about His renown and magnificence. It's about His beauty. The glory of God has been... Uh, described as it's when uh, it's the going public of the holiness of God. In other words, manifest means to make clear and obvious that, that when we talk about the glory of God, we're talking about that clear and obvious holiness of God that is sensed, seen, known, felt, touched. Like, we know it, you can't mistake it. That God is about His glory. And it seems strange that God would be talking about this instrument of, of death as the place of glory. I mean, he just said at verse 31, now is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified in Him. How in the world does glory and a cross, how in the world does that line up? Because let's not forget that a cross is an instrument of execution it's an, all, it's, a, it's an object of humiliation. It is a place where whoever is on it is to be publicly shamed. That this is a place where the worst of criminals would be placed on display for all of those who will walk by and they will see that judgment being carried out on that criminal so that it would deter anyone from doing anything against Rome that would put them in that same place. Place, But yet, here we see that Christ says, now the Son of Man is glorified. So how do glory and how, do the, how does the glory of God and the cross of Christ, how does that line up in just a few ways? We see the glory of Christ in the fact that He satisfies, Christ satisfies the just payment that sin deserves. See, it's on the cross where God is both 
the just and the justifier. We all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And because God is a just and holy God, that means He can't just look the other way And when he talks about sin, or sin isn't this thing that just is swept under the rug, and like, let's just not talk about that, or let's pretend like that doesn't ever happen. No, God is a loving, gracious, good Father, and He is absolutely just. And it is on the cross that we see glory, because it is on the cross where Christ absorbs the just payment for the sin of the world, the sin of all time. He absorbs it. Romans 3.26 says, it was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. How do we see glory in the cross? We see glory of Christ in the cross because it is through His death on the cross that He destroyed the power of sin and darkness in the enemy. Hebrews 2.14, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, He Himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death He, Christ, might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. How do we see the glory of Christ in the cross? Because Christ's death displays God's power. That we would not have an empty tomb if it were not for the crucifixion. And it's in the crucifixion that we see the glory of God because it is on that third day that we see Christ gloriously raised from the dead. In Acts chapter 3, verse 15, Peter is preaching on the temple and there's the, the religious leaders and those have gathered around and he says this, and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead and to this we are witnesses. Where do we see glory in the cross? We see the glory of Christ in the cross because of His substitutionary death. This is so important for us to hear. What is the gospel in a phrase? Christ in my place. That again, because God is just, that means a just payment must be made. We can't do anything to save ourselves. So what does God do? He Himself is that true Passover lamb. He lays down His life and takes our place on the cross We deserve. And He absorbs the wrath and the wages of our sin for those who repent and believe. Christ took our place on the cross. Isaiah 53 verse 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to His own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. How do we see glory in the cross? We see the glory of Christ in the cross because it's in His death on the cross, that we see God's holiness. That we see, it's been said as the strongest message of evidence of God's holy hatred for sin. Because it is on the cross where He, again, pours out His wrath against sin. And we see in the glory of the cross, in Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. How is there glory in the cross? We see the glory of Christ in the cross in his faithfulness to redeem his people. You go back to the very beginning of creation, and we all perhaps are familiar with the story. Adam and Eve, they chose to rebel, they chose to depart from God's design to go their own way. What did they do? As soon as 
as they understood they have rebelled against God, their sin has now turned into shame. And where do they go? They go off and they try to hide somewhere. Maybe you can relate with that moment. You know you've sinned against the Lord. And, and so what do we do? We, go, we want to go hide and, and to get away. But what does God does in His love? He pursues them in His grace. And then what does He do? He finds a, an animal of some sort. We don't know what kind of animal. The Bible doesn't say it. But we know blood was shed so that coverings were made to cover Adam and Eve. And it is a picture of the gospel of the good news how Christ will come and He will be crucified as the Lamb of God and how His blood will be shed so that those who repent and believe will be covered by His grace and His righteousness. In Genesis 3.15, God is cursing the serpent. And what does He say to the serpent? Speaking of the offspring, speaking of the Messiah to come, God says, you will You will will strike his heel. But what does God say? And he will crush your head. I just, I kind of want to scream that when I say that. You know, it's just just this beautiful picture of the glory of this good news and glory that happens at the cross of Christ. Ladies and gentlemen, the cross is a dark place, but the cross is a glorious place. It's a glorious place because it's through the cross of Christ that He is glorified and we are redeemed people. He says in verse 33, little children. It's almost like a dad pulling in his kids. Like a loving father. Little children. He brings them in. Little children. Yet in a little while I am, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. They've been with him three and a half years, somewhere in that neighborhood. They've been everywhere with Jesus. All they knew for the past three and a half years was this following Jesus. And now all of a sudden, Jesus is saying, where I'm going, you can't come. I want you to keep that in the back of your heart and mind, because this is going to come back around in a minute as he talks to Peter But what Christ is preparing them for is that His work will soon be finished on the cross. And now it will be for the disciples empowered by His Spirit to carry that ministry on. And so, the glory of Christ in the cross, but now we see the glory of Christ through His disciples. Through His disciples. Verse 34, the Bible says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Christ says, I will be glorified in the cross. And now he's saying, I'm going to be glorified through your love for one another. God is worthy of our praise. He's worthy of our verbal adoration, our our verbal praise. And I'll be honest, I, I, I love when maybe there's been a big game or somebody gets an award or something like that and they kind of step up to the podium or they're interviewed and they're like, you know, the first thing you want to do is give glory to God. I'm just like, yeah, yeah. Like, like, I mean, I don't know who's watching, but, but, but just anything that gives glory, attention to God. But all of us know that it's one thing to praise God with our lips and it's another thing to honor Him with our lives. 
And so what Christ is saying in this is, I will get my glory as you live out your life loving one another. God is going to get glory as his church loves one another. And in a sense, this is not a new command because it's the hallmark of Scripture. Love God, love people. Deuteronomy 6.4, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. And Leviticus 19, love your neighbor, love others. And we see this carried out again. Christ and the Gospels, he again, they, they push him, they question him. What's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And so in some ways, it's like, we've heard this before, but Jesus says, not in this way. Look again in verse 34. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. And here it is. Here's the new part. Just as I have loved you. This is a whole new standard of love. Like the world has never seen this type of love lived out. And it's only through the empowering grace of the Holy Spirit that we live this love. Romans 5, 5, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now, I just wonder if we took a poll and there's ever been those hard to love people in our lives. And we've been in that place where it's like, I don't know that I can love them. I don't know that I can love them. I don't know. And, 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 and but here's the encouragement of the scriptures. God has poured His love into our hearts through the power of the Holy Spirit that it is not I but Christ in me that we are able to love. That if you grew up and you hear the Fruit of the Spirit song, and I almost sang it in the 8 a.m., I'm going to spare y'all this hour because uh, nobody wants that. But, but if I get going, you might can finish it off. But the Fruit of the Spirit is love. And we just let's stop right there. <laughs> Because there's way more, but right out of the gate in the fruit of the Spirit is, the fruit of the Spirit is love, is love, that Christ is love. And we, I could show symbols of brands of organizations, and you don't even have to see the word, but you see the brand and you're like, I know who that is. Like if, if I just do this right here, who is that? McDonald's, why? Golden Arches. I didn't write a Mick or a Donald or anywhere in that. Like You just knew the symbol was McDonald's. And if I drew a swoosh or what, you know, y'all know, don't you? Nike, it's just a symbol. Like there's no words on there that says this is Nike. But everybody knows because that is the mark. That's the brand. Jesus is saying this, they will know that you're mine because not of something you wear or something you have on your vehicle. They will know because of the love that you have for one another. The love that you have, this sacrificial love. Verse 35, by this people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This is the standard Christ says, a new commandment I'm giving to you. I know we have these excuses of why and yeah, and I, I can't, I can't, no, like Christ says, this is through my Spirit's power, this is how you're going to be known. 
to the world is the love that you have for one another. Francis Schaeffer in his book, The Mark of Christ, says this, the church is to be a loving church in a dying culture that in the midst of the world and in the midst of a present dying culture, Jesus is giving a right to the world. And upon His authority, He gives the right to judge whether you and I are born-again Christians on the basis of our observable love toward all Christians. He says, this is pretty frightening. He says, Jesus turns to the world and says, I've something to say to you. On the basis of my authority, I give you a right that you may judge whether or not an individual is a Christian on the basis of the love he shows to all Christians. He goes on to say, in other words, if people come up to us and cast into our teeth the judgment that we are not Christians because we have not shown love toward other Christians, we must understand that they are only exercising the prerogative which Jesus gave them. Jesus says, this is, how will, how will they know? What's the most compelling? What's the most compelling force in sharing the good news of Jesus? It is an sacrificial, unconditional love. And Jesus says, I'm going to get my glory. Now the Son of Man is going to be glorified. He's going to get His glory through the cross. He's going to get His glory through the church, loving one another well. But we also see in the text that He will get His glory through His disciples, through their love for Him. So He's kind of talking to us as a group, but now He's going to narrow the focus because he was talking the new commandment I give to, to the 11 disciples that were there, that were remaining, and now he's just going to have a conversation with Peter. And so in verse 36, the Bible says, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Because remember just a minute ago, he said, where I'm going, you can't come. So Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow. Afterward, Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And if you know the rest of the story, we almost can read it and almost kind of like want to shake our head a little bit at Peter. Because we know, we know the, the rest of the story. But what does Christ say? Verse 38, Christ answered, will you lay down your life? For me, truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. Well, Peter says, I'll do anything for you, God. I'll, do any, I'll follow you anywhere. I'll do anything for you. I will lay down my life for you. And what does Jesus say? You're going to deny me Three times and a rooster is going to crow. And it's one of the most chilling verses, little portions of passage of scripture that I want to read with you. But in Luke chapter 22, verses 59 through 62, uh, we're approaching the third denial of Peter. And so he's already denied once. He's already denied twice. And as we'll see in the text, there's been about an hour delay. And now somebody else is about to call him out. The Bible says, and after an interval of about an hour, Still another insisted, certainly, speaking of Peter, this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you're talking about. 
And immediately, while he was still speaking, there it is, the rooster crows. And here's the, here's the chilling verses that, that just, I don't know what Peter might have felt in this moment, but look at verse 61. In that moment, the Bible says, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. That evidently it was that that court setting was in such a way that when that rooster crowed, the eyes of Christ and the eyes of Peter locked and they saw each other. And the Bible says, and Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and the Bible says he wept bitterly. He wept bitterly. He had denied Christ not once, not twice, three times. Rooster crow, fulfillment of Scripture, right there in the moment. Their eyes are locking. And under deep conviction, Peter just runs away. And he is weeping bitterly. And here is what probably all of us at some point in our lives have known to be true. Is that it is way easier in an upper room after a delicious meal with just 11 other people that are believers, to say, God, whatever you want. Whatever you want. I lay my life down for you. But what happens once Peter leaves that upper room and he goes into a hostile world who is against and opposed to Jesus, the conversations start changing and shifting that in this passage, D.A. Carson says, sadly, good intentions in a secure room after good food are far less attractive than a darkened garden in a hostile mob. So we know, we, we know the rest of the story. God desires to get glory through your life. God desires to get glory through my life. He gets glory through our lives when we walk in a way that brings honor and glory to Him. But what we know about Peter is this isn't the end of the story. Like here's, here's one of the greatest truths about Scripture and through a relationship with Jesus. Failure is never final when it comes to God. Failure is never final. If ever there was somebody who said, I've failed too much, it had to have been Peter. After he saw Christ in the eyes, it had to be him. But what do we do? Fast forward to the resurrection of Christ. He gathers his disciples in a Galilean seashore. And, and what does Peter do? Peter sees him from a distance. He literally just jumps off the boat, swims to him. What does Jesus do? Makes a breakfast for him. And if you're familiar with the, the story, uh, Jesus commissions him. And Peter gets his heart and life right with Jesus. And what goes on to happen by Acts chapter 2, Peter is filled with the Spirit and he's preaching to thousands of people. Thousands are coming to faith in Christ and God is using him to help lead his church. And so there is great glory that God gets when a life surrendered to the power of the Spirit, living for his glory, that God gets so much glory. And I just, you know, Jesus knows everything. Like He knows it in the upper room. He knows it when they lock eyes at the betrayal. He knows it at the Sea of Galilee. Peter doesn't know what God has in store. But, but Peter humbled himself before God. 
And he got right with the Lord. And Peter could have never known how God would choose to glorify himself through Peter's life. To which I just think this is a great encouragement for all of those who perhaps struggle with that thing. I've messed up too bad or I've done this. Consequences are real. Yes, consequences are real. But God's grace and love and purposes are unfailing. Nothing can change that or shape that. And so the encouragement in this passage is that we see God will get His glory and we're made for His glory and He got His glory in the cross and continues to be glorified through the cross. He continues to be glorified through His church, living, loving on each other. And He also receives glory through a surrendered life to Him, through His disciples. And let's, let's not leave this truth as applied to Peter or Thomas or the other disciples, let's, let's hear that word for our lives as followers today. And so, as we look at this text, I have a question for us to consider. And it's simply a yes or no answer. And it's an answer that you can just, you can process in your heart. And that is this. Are you living for the glory of God? Or are you living for the glory of something lesser. And that God will get His glory. God's plan for you is to get glory. He desires to get His glory through loving one another. He desires to get His glory as we trust Him and follow Him, even in the midst of very broken and difficult times. God is gracious. And so... May we be encouraged to love. Does love mark your life? Does love mark your life? This is how Jesus says that you're going to know, they're going to know your mind because of how you love other people. It's going to look so different and so sacrificial and so over the top that it's like, what's different about that? That's a different kind of love. What is that love that this God will get his glory through that love? And and a and second encouragement I would share is just to the believer who feels like they have failed. Like if anybody was ever an example of that, it's Peter. Yet where's God meeting him in grace and care, preparing a meal for him, helping him work through those failures? You know, do you love me? Yes, I love you. Do you love me? Yes, of course I do. Well, you love me? Well, it's like, yes, I love you. He's like, well, then feed my sheep. In other words, do my will. And God's going to get glory through that. And so I encourage you to find the grace that failure is never final. And that as we repent and trust and rest, God's Spirit heals those broken areas in our life. And that I would also say that in this passage, we continue to see this pursuit of God in redeeming a sinful people to Himself. And if you're here and living apart from a relationship with God, just hear and see the love of God pursuing you. And this invitation that at the cross, He paid the price for our sin, was placed in the tomb and rose gloriously from the grave, proving that He alone has the power to forgive our sin and to make us right with Him. And as Christ even said, whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. Just know that invitation to life-giving relationship is always there. So let's pray together as we reflect on His Word. Father, thank You for 
this upper room discourse, this upper room teaching. Father, it's such a gift to, to us as your church because it's in these final hours of your ministry with the disciples that we learn, God, your desire, your design, your heart for your church. And as believers, that's, that's us. The church is not a building. It's not brick. It's not mortar. It's not concrete. It is a redeemed people. And so for those who have repented of their sin and trusted in Jesus as Lord of all, God, I pray that we would be reminded that You want to show the world that we belong to You through our love for each other. And God, that we would, by Your grace and through the power of the Holy Spirit that You poured into our hearts, God, we know that the fruit of the Spirit is love. And God, that You would give us the grace and the power to love well. Therefore, bringing you glory and honor, which is your design. And God, as we move from addressing the church as a whole to the individual, God, I know you, you, love, you love Peter so much. And God, you loved him more than anybody ever could. And God, yet as you told him in that upper room, he was so confident of his commitment to you and he'd lay down his life but yet you you knew you saw you understood what was coming but God even in that you met him pursued him around that sea after the resurrection and God just giving that opportunity for Peter to experience grace and God to get his heart and life right and in and in alignment with your will for his life and God, what a blessing to see the glory that you got through Peter's surrender to you. And so I pray, God, that for anybody who feels their failure is limiting or holding them or perhaps even disqualified them, God, may they be reminded of your grace and love, care, forgiveness, and desire to use their life to bring you glory. And God, for that heart that's far from you, God, even to the end, you are extending grace to Judas. So God, even today, we don't know what our future holds. We're not even promised the rest of this day. God, I pray that, that whomever, whatever heart would be far from you, God, that there would be this deep conviction over sin and this repentance and turning to you and surrendering to You as Lord of all, believing in You. And God, that You would give grace and forgiveness and life everlasting. God, I pray that You would work in our hearts. You'd find us obedient. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to invite you to stand with us as we have a song of response and just encourage you to just... Lay your heart before the Lord. We have pastors here who would love to pray over you, encourage you. Altars always open, but just to give this time to the Lord and to honor Him in this time.